the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to John. How many of you have heard the term distinguishing mark? A few of you. A distinguishing mark is a term that is typically used in situations where someone may need to report a way that they can be identified, or it may be something that even investigators will use during an investigation as a way of asking someone to describe a person that they witnessed do a crime, that they don't know the person, so they just have to try to describe what they looked like. And the term for a mark that might set someone apart from anybody else is a distinguishing mark. It's defined this way, a visible distinguishing identification mark that is any identification mark on your body by birth, a birthmark, or indelible scar in clothed condition, something that you can see uh, even when that person has got their clothes on, obviously. To give you some examples, it could be a mole on your hand. It could be a cut or a mark on your forehead or your face. It could be a permanent tattoo or a scar on your hand or your arm. These describe what a physical distinguishing mark is. In the same way, followers of Jesus can be identified by distinguishing marks. You study the scripture and you find various examples of distinguishing marks that can identify his followers. But there is a single distinguishing mark that we can prioritize. And if we were to go around the auditorium or do a survey of those of you watching or listening online and ask you, okay, what do you think is the distinguishing mark or marks of a Christian, a follower of Jesus? And we may come up with some various answers. And even though we come up with various answers, they may all be right, correct answers. But there is one distinguishing mark that is prioritized above all the rest. And that's not just my opinion. Jesus says so. And we find it here in John 13. In this chapter, Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover together. He washed his disciples' feet. And then Judas left to betray him. Between that time and Jesus' prayer time in the garden, Jesus taught his disciples many things. Warren Wearsby calls this, not just this chapter, but this portion of scripture, Christ's farewell sermon. And Constable said that, Jesus now began to explain what he expected of his disciples during his absence from them. Jesus would share with these followers, here's what I want for you and your lives 
after I leave. Jesus knew what was coming, didn't he? He was going to be betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, buried, three days later rise again, spend a short amount of time with them, and go back to heaven. And so in many ways, this was a part of Jesus' last time, his last opportunity with his followers. What stood out to Jesus? What was on his mind? What did he think was essential to give his disciples the last night he was with them? What did he identify as the distinguishing mark of his followers? Look at John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Read verse 35 Go ahead and read it aloud with me, would you? By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Wow. What a statement. Love for one another as Christ loved us is the distinguishing mark of his followers. Out of all the things that Jesus could have shared with them, that last night, that last opportunity, love was the theme of his message. Yes, he taught them other things, but even considered the appearance of the word. In the first 12 chapters of John, the word love appears 12 times. In the last eight chapters, John 13 through 21, the word appears 44 times. Love. Jesus identified his commandment as new. A new commandment I give Unto you, as we have focused on love, you know that Jesus was not the first to give this command. The Old Testament, the law, and the Torah commanded that they love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and that they love their neighbor. But this word new in this context does not mean something that is brand new that has not been true in the past or been in existence in the past. The word new in this context means fresh as opposed to worn out. And at least three aspects of the newness of the command are apparent. First, the commandment is new in its dispensation. Yes, this was commanded in the law recorded in the Torah. And it distinguished a law-abiding Jew from others. But now Jesus said in his economy, it would distinguish his followers from others. It was new in its dimension. Loving God and others as Jesus loved us is empowered by the indwelling spirit of God. That was something the Jew did not have. 
Those living under the old covenant did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit to fulfill that command. In fact, Paul would write in the New Testament in more than one place that that law containing 613 commands was ultimately to show Israel that they could not measure up. For us, we have the indwelling Spirit of God to empower us to do this. The fruit of the Spirit is Love. Third, the commandment was new in its demonstration. As Jesus loved us is the instruction. So tonight, as we think about the distinguishing mark, I want to just share with you from God's word. We'll use this passage as a springboard into other places to discuss Six characteristics of this kind of love, this distinguishing mark. While Jesus interacted with his disciples in the upper room that night leading up to his betrayal, he gave them this new commandment. And so we'll examine it to find these characteristics to describe the love we are to share with others. Number one, I want you to see with me tonight, it is a sacrificing love. Soon after all of this took place, Jesus would demonstrate that by his action, wouldn't he? Through his ultimate sacrifice of love, he literally laid down his life for us. Jesus revisited his command to love later that same night in the same message. John 15, verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This clearly impressed John who penned these words and then later this exhortation to the believers in 1 John chapter 3. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. How did John define God's love? John defined God's love through the demonstration of God's love, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And as he applied God's love to us, He did so through that sacrifice. In other words, John says, here is how God loved us. And in the same way, we should lay down our lives for one another. Now, is this fulfilled literally by dying for each other? No. John defines it. He sees it. Through sacrificial giving. That's why he brings up in 17 and 18 this idea of if you have the world's goods and shut up your bowels of compassion 
from the one in need, how dwells, God, how dwells the love of God in you? Loving others as Jesus loved us is demonstrated through sacrificial giving for the good of someone else. It's giving to meet a need that cannot be met. If you have food, give to one that is hungry. If you have a roof over your head, give so that others can be sheltered. If you have more than you need to live, give to those who do not have enough to live. Sacrificial love like that distinguishes the follower of Christ from others. He demonstrated it through laying down his life. Number two, it's a deferring love. Look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. There, Paul writes these words, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. That word honor comes from a word that means a value, a price that is paid, esteem, to give dignity. And then the word preferring means to lead the way for others or to give deference. As you think about how we treat others, a major consideration of our treatment of others is the value that we assign to others. What value do you place on those around you? What value, what worth do you place on the lives of people around you? If we were to assign a premium value on others, to see them as God does, a person created in the image of God for a divine purpose and with a divine destiny, how might that change the way we treat others? We should view others with a value as God does and lead others through doing this by taking initiative. By being the first one to go out of our way to honor someone else, to defer to them. And that sounds a lot like the love that Jesus showed to us, doesn't it? He saw us as worthy to lay down his life for. He thought that much of us. He assigned that value to us. It's a deferring love. Number three tonight. It's an empathizing love. Paul penned these words in 1 Corinthians 12, 26 and 27. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Paul here describes this attitude and activity of empathy. The Attitude and activity of entering into someone else's pain, joy, and experiencing it with them. 
But do you know that this is a challenge to our natural human tendencies? It is a major struggle that we have to connect to this aspect of empathy. That is because we tend more often to focus on ourselves through envy and comparison. In other words, when we look at others, when we consider what they have to rejoice about, to celebrate, when we think about what they are experiencing by way of pain, so often our human tendency is to envy on one hand or compare on the other hand. This is even seen in relation to the rise of social media. In psychological circles, they talk about the issue of negative social comparison. How many of you have heard the term or the acronym FOMO? The fear of missing out. Uh, Often when people see other social media posts, selfies in these wonderful places of the world and on these vacations and on these trips, it has led to this rise within us, the fear of missing out. But that That response comes from this natural human tendency to either envy or compare. Why can't I do that? Why can't I have that experience? How come I don't get to do that? They're talking about their pain and my pain is so much worse than that. What are they whining about? I've got more to whine about than that. This is our natural human tendency. Why? We struggle with comparison and envy. Someone else rejoices over a promotion, a pay raise, a life victory, weight loss, a new relationship. And if we struggle with envy and comparison, we do not rejoice with them in their blessing. We envy it. Why can't I lose the weight? Why can't I get the promotion? I've been making the same amount of money for 12 years. When am I going to get my raise? It becomes a source of envy rather than rejoicing with those who rejoice. Same is true on the other side. Someone is experiencing a hurt, a burden, or a loss. They share it with us, whether it's in person or through social media. And if we struggle with envy and comparison rather than Mourning with those who mourn rather than entering into and experiencing their pain with them. We use it as a point of comparison. To highlight our pain, our burden, our loss, why we have it so much worse. But God calls us to something higher. To empathy. The ability to relate to someone else and share in their experience. And didn't Jesus do that? He left the glories of heaven. He came to this world. As we read in our scripture reading this morning and studied in the message this morning... We have a high priest who's been tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. The God of heaven took on the infirmities and the weaknesses of human flesh to experience 
weariness, to experience hunger, to experience thirst. And beyond these, the worst parts of the human condition, disloyalty, betrayal, broken trust, friends turning their backs on, family members rejecting and neglecting. Jesus experienced all of those and he did so. For us, Paul said it this way in the book of Corinthians, for our sakes, he became poor. Jesus demonstrated that attitude and activity of entering into and experiencing the experience of someone else. And we are called to do that as well. Number four tonight is serving Love. Look with me at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. The Bible here declares, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Do you know what Paul tells us? You are free in Christ. Don't use your liberty as an excuse for selfishness. Use your liberty by love to serve one another. Our Christian walk should be distinguished through loving service. Think about what happened just before Jesus gave that command to his disciples. Back in John 13, you know the passage well. The Bible begins there in that chapter by uh, revealing A declaration of Jesus' unending love, followed by his humble service through washing their feet. And it concluded with a declaration that they should follow his example. So John relates to us that Jesus, chapter 13, verse 1, he loved them. He knew that his time with them was coming to an end and he loved them and he emphasizes he loved them unto the end. He loved them eternally. He, he loved them without end. And when supper was over, he took on the humblest job of the household servant to wash his disciples' feet. And after he completed that task, he looked at his disciples and said... Follow my example. As I have done unto you, so you should do to one another. The question to ask then is what example did he set? You say, Pastor, it's pretty explanatory, isn't it? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? He washed their feet. But I think that misses actually the deeper point. He loved them. He loved them deeply enough to be moved to that humble service. You see, making up my mind that I'm going to serve others in that way is not going to lead me to love them. I need to go first to the cross, to Christ, to his example and learn From him, let him develop his heart in me and let that love them prompt my service. Number five, a redeeming love. First Peter chapter three, verses eight and nine. Listen to what Peter writes. Finally, 
Be all of my, one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you're thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. I chose to call this characteristic a redeeming love because it so well represents Jesus' love for us. Think about Jesus. What did he do when he was treated evilly, when he was railed against? What did he do? He was opposed. He was falsely accused. He was spat upon. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was whipped. He was nailed to the cross. He was evilly mistreated. He, he, was, he was railed on. He was tortured. He was killed. He was betrayed. Those closest to him broke their trust with him. When he uh, faced the most difficult time of his life, they turned their backs and fled from him. What did Jesus do in response? Did he return railing for railing? Did he return evil treatment for evil treatment? Did he sin against because he was sinned against? No. After all of that, what did he proclaim from the cross? Father, forgive them. That's what he said. That's how he prayed. We took his life. He gave life. We sinned against him. He shed his blood to wash away our sin. That's how he responded. And we are to love as he loved. For us, I think a redeeming love is demonstrated through not giving people what they deserve nor through not giving anything. God does not call us to return people in like manner as they've treated us, but nor does God tell us to just sweep it under the rug and go on our way. Well, just ignore it. Have you ever heard that advice before? Well, someone mistreated you, just turn and walk away. Don't even give it a second thought. Is that what God says? Peter tells us right there, when you are mistreated, don't return in that same manner. He says, but contrarywise, blessing. What did Jesus command? Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Bless them that curse you. And so God actually calls us not even to just turn away and ignore it. Not just to, to let it roll off. He actually calls us to purposefully respond in love. Giving a blessing. Actively loving, doing good. When we're treated evilly, railed against, give a blessing. 
And then I want you to see a sixth characteristic and we'll conclude a reciprocating love. Look at what John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. A reciprocating love. Now, we might immediately get in our minds this idea then, reciprocating love as others love us. But that is not the thought. We'll love as we love ourselves. I mean, after all, that, the Bible speaks about that, doesn't it? Old Testament, love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus, even, when he spoke about the law, said the same thing. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy might. Love others as you love yourselves. On this hang all the law and the prophets. This is, this is it. This is God's idea. But I think that fails to miss the progression. Yes, that was what the law taught. But when Jesus spoke to his disciples the night he was betrayed before he was crucified, as he did with so much of the Old Testament law, he moved it to a higher level. It wasn't just thou shalt not kill. It was don't hate your brother in your heart or you're guilty the same way. It wasn't, don't just commit the act of adultery. It was, don't look with lust. In the same way, positively, Jesus said, don't love others as they love you. And let's move beyond love others as you love yourselves. Jesus called us to more. He said, love like God loves. It's something entirely different. When we move beyond those previous ideas to I'm to love you the way God loves me. That is the reciprocal love that I'm supposed to reflect. God loves me that way. I'm going to love you that way. So often, though, it's our tendency to do to others as we receive. And I think that's where many of us regularly live. To love as I am loved, to give as I'm given to, to respond in like kind. That is natural tendency. That's where we so often regularly find ourselves. But God calls us to more, something much higher, to love just as he loved. An early Christian leader by the name of Tertullian, he was born about 80 years after John penned his account of the gospel. And he wrote, reporting that the pagans of his day, remember, within a century after the gospel was published, 
And the pagans of his day said of Christians, see how they love one another. That is what stood out. See how they love one another. That's what I want for people to say about me. To say about us. To say about our church. And even more, that's what Jesus wants. Look at all the different distinguishing marks you can in the word of God. But one stands out above all the rest. Love as I have loved you. That's how all will know. You're my disciples. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for just another another reminder, another challenge tonight related to loving you and loving others better. I pray as we go into this coming week with these six characteristics just circulating in our minds that you would help us to to reflect on them, to think on them, to seek you that our hearts might be developed, our lives might be matured more and more to love as you loved. And we'll praise and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night. Have a great week.